The reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you and for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. As we've heard, Ben's not well this morning. So I responded to the request from Jess to um, step in and take over from where Ben had got to. So if I'm honest, this is mostly mostly a hastily written mashup of what Ben had already done and what John Stotts has written in his commentary. Hopefully it's a Holy Spirit-inspired mashup, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teachers of your word and for the commentators who have studied your word and help us to understand it and to come to grips with it. Father, we thank you for Ben and we pray that he would know your love for him this morning and your peace poured out. Father, as we look at this passage together, we pray that you would lay on our hearts those things that you want us to hear and take to heart. Father, help us to hear from you as we look at it together. Amen. So two weeks ago, as uh, Martin has said, we started this new series called Walking Worthily. We began by looking at the establishing of the uh, church in Thessalonica, 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 whatever you want to call it. In Acts, we looked at this passage in Acts, Before we start on exploring the two letters to the church, and they're great letters that show the depth of Paul's love for the Christians there and his passion both for God's word and for God's people. As we saw in Acts 17, and and you can see on YouTube or the podcast, you can catch up with what's already gone before. When Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, He had mixed results. Many believed and started meeting in Jason's house. You might remember that. But others were jealous of Paul's success and they whipped up this rent-a-mob, started a riot and forced Paul to flee in the dead of night. 
Worse still, they chased him out of the next door town as well. Remember, he went to Berea. Paul ended up in Corinth and most likely wrote his letter there after Timothy had joined him and given him news of how the Thessalonians were getting on. And so we begin at the beginning of chapter 1 this morning. Please follow it through in the Bible if you can as we look at it. So verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. It's pretty standard stuff, very similar to Paul's letters, and in fact to all letters at the time. And isn't it great, when they wrote letters, the first thing that they told us is who it was from. I mean, now we have to look at the end of the letter to see who it's from. Doesn't it just make more sense to know from the start? Anyway, it is a a standard start, and it's tempting to skip over verse 1 and head straight into verse 2. But then, and this is according to Ben, we'd miss four important things. First, the word church. There's no such word in Greek. Instead, Paul used the word for a gathering or a community. He's writing to people, not to an institution. We're people, not an institution. Secondly, the word in, and it's such an important word, especially for Paul. What does it mean that Christians are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's like branches being in a tree, joined to the source of life and sustenance. Thirdly, the way Paul calls Jesus Lord and makes him equal with the Father. In Paul's Bible, the word Lord was used in place of God's name. So if Jesus is the Lord, that means he is God. This is not an invention of the later church, but something that the very earliest Christians believed. And fourth, grace to you and peace. Here, grace is used as the sum total of all God's activity. Everything he's done and gives us in Jesus. And the result of that work is peace. In the Bible, peace or shalom is about wholeness and completeness. So Paul is writing to a gathering of people whose life and identity is a gift from God which results in peace in all circumstances. And apparently, Ben could preach an entire sermon on verse 1. I think I might have got a bit stuck, so thankfully there are a few more verses for us to look at. I wonder who's the person or the people that you are most thankful for. I think of my friend Hugh, who led me into the Christian faith, who introduced me to Jesus. When Paul wrote, we always thank God for all of you, he wasn't being nice. He really meant it. A, he wasn't British, and B, he didn't put it in all of his letters. He put it in his letter to the Thessalonians. He really meant it. He loved the Thessalonians. He called them brothers and sisters 22 times in his two letters to them. 
And for Paul, thankfulness goes hand in hand with prayer. He's always thankful to God for all of them. But why? Why is he so thankful for them? Let's skip ahead and get a little to verse 5 and work backwards. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Although Luke doesn't mention any in his account of Paul's visit to Thessalonica, we know that miracles and signs and wonders often went alongside the preaching of the gospel. So maybe Paul's referring to those? Personally, and this is Bobby speaking, I think any conversion to Christ, any time someone becomes a Christian, it is a miraculous work, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's power at work in the new believer, opening eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And the Spirit's power at work in and through the messenger, not just with words, Paul writes, but with power. Ben too was going to speak about the work in the speaker of the gospel. He writes, Personally, I think Paul means more the power with which he shared the message, not in a whiz-bang, fancy, showy way, but from his deep conviction of the truth and the integrity of his way of life. Verse 5, you know how we lived among you. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, has so much more power when our lifestyle matches our words. The way we live shows the truth or betrays the lie of what we say. The Thessalonians accepted the truth of the gospel, not only because of what they heard, but because of what they saw. The Holy Spirit was behind all of that, behind Paul's deep conviction and behind the Thessalonians' newfound faith. And for that, Paul was thankful. He was also thankful that they were chosen by God, verse 4. And if you discuss this passage at home group this week, as we will be doing, I strongly suggest you don't get lost down this particular rabbit hole. God choosing his people is a thread that runs throughout the Bible. John Stott puts it, the purpose of election is to foster assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy, humility, not pride, and witness, not lazy selfishness. But to be honest, being chosen is never fully explained. The closest we get is maybe in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it's written, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. It's no accident that Paul also links God's love and choice here in verse 4. God choosing his people, God choosing us, is an act of love. And Paul is thankful. And so we continue working backwards and we come to verse 3. Now this is where Ben's words ended. 
And so, to be honest, I'm guessing what Ben might have said about verse 3 and the rest of the chapter for that matter. Praying and trusting the Holy Spirit to fill the gaps. I think Paul is grateful that they are carrying on walking faithfully with the Lord. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how they have responded to the gospel. Remember, that's our title for today. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The three Christian graces, faith, love, and hope. John Stott writes about how these are three outward-looking graces. Faith directed towards God, love directed towards others, and hope towards the future, and in particular to the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul points out, they are productive. Faith works, love labors, and hope endures. A true faith in God leads to good works. As James tells us in his letter, faith without works is dead. A true love for people leads to labor for them. The word labor is a strong word speaking of exertion and the fatiguing nature of what is done. We know about people who labor in love for others in this church. I just give thanks, and I frequently give thanks, and I hope that she's still around when I need her, to Joanne Rose and to all of the pastoral care team who labor in love for the people people in our church family, and I'm sure there are others who would want to give thanks for Joanne too. And a true hope looks expectantly for the Lord's return leading to endurance, including patience in the face of opposition. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some theologians have called this verse a brief definition of true Christianity. And as we continue exploring this title of responding to the gospel, let's move on to verse 6 and 7. Here we read how the Thessalonians had welcomed the message in the midst of suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and become imitators of Paul, presumably Silas and Timothy, and of the Lord too. They were seeking to be like Jesus. Are you seeking to be like Jesus? Am I seeking to be like Jesus? In seeking to be like Jesus, they became a model to other believers. In fact, according to Paul, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. There had been, and still was, considerable opposition in Thessalonica to the gospel. But the Thessalonian believers were standing firm. 
And despite that opposition, they welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that gave power to those who preached the gospel and gave power to those who received it. And they didn't just receive the message, they believed it. And they didn't just believe it, it changed their behavior. In following the example of Paul, as well as the teaching of the apostles and of Jesus, the truth of the gospel becomes not just words to be believed, but a transformed life to be lived. And a transformed life that was witnessed by others. The imitators were imitated. This is a challenge. It suggests that how I receive and respond to the gospel isn't just a private thing between me and God, but something that is witnessed and perhaps imitated by others. How am I doing? How are we doing at living authentic, transformed life? That's a good model for others. Paul goes on to write in verse 7, The Lord's message rang out from you. The gospel proclaimed by the Thessalonians rang out so loudly that it seemed to reverberate through the hills and valleys of Greece, and their faith was seen everywhere. Again, there seems to be this matchup between what they said and how they lived out their faith. Integrity and authenticity in what was heard and what was seen. No wonder Paul was so thankful for this young church. They'd embraced the message with such joy and wholeheartedly aligned themselves with its truth. So much that Paul feels that there's nothing more for him to add. Before we finish, let's have a little look at what was being reported about their faith. Halfway through verse 9, if you're still following in your Bibles, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Three-part analysis of Christian conversion. A decisive break with idols, an active service of God, and a patient waiting for Christ. John Stott suggests that it would be difficult to exaggerate how radical is the change of allegiance implied by the turn from idols to the living and true God. Idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one God. Idols are the work of human hands. But God is the creator of the whole universe and all of humankind. The idols or God substitutes of our day may be very different to the false gods found in Thessalonica but they are equally powerful. Self, money, power, fame, houses, holidays, cars, experience. Every idolater is a prisoner held in humiliating bondage. 
But through the gospel and the grace of God, the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve the living God. But the Christian message isn't just about turning from idols, but involves a positive turning towards and service of the living God. We turn from slavery to false gods to service of the living and true God whose children we have become. And we wait. We wait for his son in heaven who will save us from the coming wrath. One day, God's judgment will fall, and it is from this judgment that Jesus is our deliverer. We hope for the day when Jesus will return, and we actively serve while patiently waiting. Although we must look expectantly for the coming of Christ, we mustn't wait idly, arms folded, indifferent to the needs of the world around us. John Stott puts it much better than I could. Thus, working and waiting belong together. In combination, they will deliver us both from the presumption that thinks we can do everything and from the pessimism that thinks we can do nothing. So to conclude, we have seen how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel There are two summary points that I want to steal from John Stott. Firstly, the church that receives the gospel must pass it on. Paul makes clear the sequence in this chapter. Our gospel came to you. You welcomed it. It rang out from you. God's plan for world evangelism, every church every believer passing it on. And secondly, the church that passes on the gospel must embody it. Everybody, possibly hyperbole on Paul's part, everybody had heard of the faith of the Thessalonian church and the transformation that it had brought about. People could hear the gospel, but they could see it too. I finish with this paragraph from John Stott's commentary. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we are talking about. It's not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith, love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope. And that's what I pray for us at Christ Church. Amen.